Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. You're hearing Vaughn Williams's Lark's Lark Ascending featuring the Greater Bridgeport Symphony and music director Eric Jacobson. You also heard Eric's brother Colin Jacobson as soloist. The performance was filmed in 2018 in the long abandoned Palace Theater in Bridgeport, where music once again reigned, symbolizing the very essence of the challenges of surviving and reemerging from the pandemic. However, Eric Jacobson is completing his final season with the Greater Bridgeport Symphony. And today we talked to Eric about his work as a conductor. And we'll also hear about the search for the next orchestra leader who will take over the conductor's baton. And we'll also talk about their commitment to serving the Greater Bridgeport community and their work to get children interested in classical music. But first, we have Chelsea Tipton II, who is the music director of the Symphony of Southeast Texas. He also serves as the principal pops director for the New Haven Symphony Orchestra in Connecticut. We also have Mark Halstead, who is the executive director of the Greater Bridgeport Symphony. Thank you both for joining us today. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. You can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Mark, I want to start with you. You know, Can you tell us a little bit about the Bridgeport Symphony Orchestra and what makes this orchestra so special? I, I think we've uh, we've established ourselves in our community in a very special way, and uh, that's been doing a large part to Eric Jacobson. Um, we've reached into the community in ways in the last few years that uh, has helped us expand a little bit beyond our normal area, but we're still very much an orchestra of the greater Bridgeport, Connecticut area. So that's a lot of towns. Um, but it, it uh, we've, we've reached out to to uh, families and to younger people. We're starting to really make some interesting forays into education. And uh, I'm very proud of the work that we've done. And boy, the memories that came back from hearing the Lark ascending there. And it was such a privilege to be there and watch that be filmed in that dramatic space and that wonderful video that was made. It's just indicative of the great years we've had with Eric. I definitely felt like something was ascending the moment that track started playing, to be honest. And did, can you uh, get into a little bit of the, of the history of how the orchestra started? I believe it was originally called the Fairfield County Orchestra or uh, Connecticut Symphony Orchestra. Can you uh, take us on a dive in history for a little bit? Well, even before those days, we were a WPA project back in the 30s with Frank Foti conducting. So it wasn't really an official 
orchestra at that point, but it was something that uh, made its impression on, of all people, my mother in 1938, uh, that in Central High School, uh, the Frank Foti brought, brought the orchestra into that school where very few kids had ever had any uh, exposure to classical music. And my mother always cited that as the beginning of her love of classical music, and she gave it to me. Um, 1946, after the war, it was realized that the, that the orchestra had been a great thing for Bridgeport. So uh, when Bridgeport was a real uh, center for business and manufacturing, the local uh, 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 patrons of business got together and uh, made the Bridgeport Symphony as we now know it. Uh, it was originally called the Connecticut Symphony Orchestra. It went for a short time as the Fairfield County Symphony. And in 1965, it became the Greater Bridgeport Symphony. And uh, for much of that time, we were under the baton of the great Gustav Meyer. And uh, in 2014, uh, Eric came on board, and um, we've obviously had our wonderful travails in the last few years getting through the pandemic, but I will say that everyone pulled together, and we did things that were a little outside the box, but it kept our audience engaged, it kept the music alive, and I think that's the thing I'll always be proudest of, is that we were out there when we were needed most. Well, I definitely want to get into the role of music during the pandemic in a little bit, but I also want to quickly touch on, you know, your your mom got the inspiration in 1938, 2014, we saw Eric come in, and now we're in 2023. Sounds like a new era is about to happen. Can you talk about this very unique season where you have people auditioning to become the next conductor? What has that process been like? And what what do you think it will be like to see Eric's uh, Eric's final concert? Oh, don't ask me that question. That one makes me sad right now. And I want to be happy about uh, one of your guests today, Chelsea Tipton, who's conducting as the fourth of the candidates that we've vetted for the position of music director. And it's been going on actually uh, for over a year. The first of the candidates was Eduardo Leandro a year ago, uh, November. This year, we've had Benjamin Hockman and Chelsea Gallo. And our audience responds so well. And I would like to say that uh, I think what they're responding to is is the, the vigor, the uh, the uh, involvement, the engagement that the these conductors have brought to our audiences, uh, they are, uh, they're all great candidates. And uh, as executive director, I don't have a vote, but I'm really glad I don't because the choice is very difficult. It's been an exciting time. Uh, our, uh, we have a, a great uh, committee of, of board members looking at this and making a very fair process of evaluation. And um, if all goes well, we'll be able to say by the end of the season who our new conductor is. Uh, and uh, we'll be looking into next season with uh, great uh, expectation, great hope and, uh, and excitement because uh, it will be in some ways a fresh start, but in other ways, it's a much, very much a continuation of the energy that's been on our stage now for quite some time. And that's, that I think is what our board and our, our, our audience is most concerned with, that we keep this great uh, momentum going that uh, we don't lose anything that we've gained in the last several years with uh, uh, the challenges we've had to come through. Uh, we're, we're strong. We're a very strong group in our community. We are more recognized than we have been for, for many decades, I'm sure. And so we need to keep that going. And our new music director is key to that. And I, I think riding along those waves of, of continuing the momentum and continuing the energy is uh, Chelsea Tipton II, who has been a part of this process. Uh, Chelsea, would love for you to talk a little bit about, you know, your history as a musician and how did you end up working as a conductor? Well, again, thank you for having me. Um, this is uh, a real privilege to have a chance to work with the Greater Bridgeport Symphony. 
Uh, my relationship with the symphony started as part of the pandemic. Uh, we did an outdoor concert, one of the first concerts to be performed in Connecticut. Uh, they had me on a perch really far from the stage and everyone was, was uh, set six feet apart and we were able to make music. And it was it was a real it was a real wonderful to the start to the start of wonderful start to our relationship. So I grew up in Greensboro, North Carolina. Um, both my parents were music teachers. My dad played clarinet. Um, I played uh, I played clarinet as well. My mom played trumpet. And um, when I went to college to major in music, about my sophomore year, I started taking took a conducting class, and, and I really enjoyed it. Um, what I didn't realize, you know, so I got my friends together and we did a, we actually did a concert in the main hall at the school. And what I didn't realize is that it wasn't so much the music that was challenging is how do you work with people? And people often see conductors, they say, how do you, you know, you have that stick and you've got that power, you've got that influence. And it really isn't about that. It's about trying to get people to work together as a collective to have one, one idea of how the music to, should go. So, um, when when I was doing that first rehearsal with the group in my my sophomore year, um, it, when I stopped to talk to the to the group, that's where I realized I didn't know what I was doing. And uh, you know, so you you go through the the process of learning how to uh, learn music, how to work with people, how to try to inspire people, how to connect with the community. Uh, from there, I, I got my master's degree in conducting. And then I taught for several years at some universities. Um, but when I moved to Cincinnati, that was when I was around a, a professional, a full-time professional orchestra for the first time. And um, that's when I decided that I wanted to pursue working with professional orchestras. So my pathway has been certainly as an assistant conductor with the Savannah Symphony first, and then Toledo Symphony, which was probably the most significant period of my uh, development as a conductor. I was there for seven years, did just tons and tons of concerts. Um, but then after a while, you want to have your own orchestra. So I uh, got the job down here in Beaumont, Texas, where I currently reside, right outside of Houston. Been here for 14 years as music director. And as you said, uh, eight, well, I think this is my eighth season with the uh, New Haven Symphony. So I come up to New Haven about four times a year to work with that orchestra. So uh, it's, it's not a linear path. And that's what I tell young people who want to go into the arts. Um, Maestro Jacobson also, he's a, he's a cellist. That was his entry into the, the classical music world. But then it takes on this other life as, as a conductor. And it's hard to keep both going. I get my, keep my clarinet going or him keeping his cello going. But we, we, I, I think it's important to stay in touch with where you began as a, as a musician. And it keeps you, it reminds you of what the musicians are going through that you're trying to help lead um, in the orchestra. So I, I've enjoyed it. Uh, the pandemic was a very dark, dark period for all arts organizations, but it's made me in a much more of a space of gratitude, um, even more so now that I get a chance to to work with various orchestras and, and to work with the Greater Bridgeport Symphony. 
what sounds like music is a great metaphor uh, towards what life can can bring. And I this is not the first time I'm hearing that the pan- the pandemic is a dark place for music, but a lot of musicians and artists have found a place in that, and would love to uh, dig in a little deeper on that in a little bit. But just want to touch on too, you know, from Cincinnati to Texas to Connecticut, and you mentioned you're in your eighth season as the principal pops conductor with the New Haven Symphony Orchestra. What what are some of the are there unique challenges and opportunities while serving Connecticut? Well, in working in the in the pops realm, I'll talk speak speak of that first. You know, the, the challenge we have there is we get either one or two rehearsals, and so just the time constraint and trying to get the music together and and to connect with the the audience. Um, in the classical world, uh, this will be my first classical concert. Um, with the Greater Bridgeport Symphony. And uh, there you have a little bit more time to dig into the music. Um, And Connecticut has, I I think they give a lot of very good support to the arts, uh, to all the arts uh, in that region. And that's been refreshing to see. Um, Down here in Texas, we have, it's a very much a band, a concert band state, uh, but we have some, some wonderful orchestras but what I love about Connecticut is, is your support of the arts and the teaching of the arts. One of the things that Mark alluded to was the mission of the Greater Bridgeport Symphony for uh, towards education and to exposing young people uh, to the arts. That can't be overemphasized enough. I remember when I was in Greensboro, which Greensboro had its own symphony, has its symphony, Greensboro Symphony. But the North Carolina Symphony would come into Greensboro, go to the Coliseum, and they'd bus us to, in fifth grade, they'd bus us to the Coliseum for their for the young people's concerts. And the, the North Carolina Symphony was known for doing that, uh, doing 100 concerts a year all around the states to communities that don't have an orchestra. That really stuck with me. I'm glad the title of the orchestra in Bridgeport is the greater Bridgeport Symphony, because it shouldn't just serve Bridgeport, it should serve the entire surrounding area and to make an impact. And you never know when we have kids to come to rehearsals, which we'll have uh, next week, they come to rehearsals, um, we'll have uh, one student to, to play in one of the rehearsals on, on one of the, on the symphony for part of it. You just never know who you're going to touch, who's gonna get that spark, who's gonna be inspired and the thing I love about the arts is, is not only we want people to be turned in them into music majors, but I think the arts teaches great principles to live your life by. So even if you don't go into music, the principles that you learn as an artist, whether it's visual art, dance, music, photography, those principles can be put into other areas of your life to help you become more successful and to be a better human being. So that's what I love about um, that's what I love about Connecticut is that it is very arts focused and people are open to different types of arts. One of the things I admired about Maestro Jacobson's programming over the years with the Greater Bridgeport Symphony, he really did some daring things with the orchestra. We can't be, we, we have to be continuously evolving. And there's the tendency that we want to just play only the pieces that people want to hear and know. But you, you have to have that, okay? That's part of the core curriculum. However, there has to be this desire to go outside the box as well and expand 
uh, the art scene. And audiences in Connecticut seem to be open to that. So that's what I, I like about it. What I was going to ask you, if you're interested in in providing education to to the community, and I think your passion has just answered that question, but I do want to touch on, <laughs> yeah. and I mean, we love the passion because that's what we're here for, right? And sure. and to talk beyond the classics too, such as, you know, we hear about Beethoven, we hear about Mozart, those are the big names in classical mm-hmm. music, but what are the music that excites you? And do you have any modern composers that you love that you use to inspire maybe the younger generation? to want to be interested in classical music? Well, the, the, the flippant answer, which I, people ask me that, is it's really the music that I'm working on at this moment is what is my favorite music because you're so focused on it. I, on this concert that I'm doing um, next week, one of my favorite pieces, the Dvorak Cello Concerto, I have loved this piece for literally decades, and I just only recently conducted it for the first time. Um, I, I love the music of Dvorak and his the rhythms, the melodies, and the themes that he uses, this, the way he orchestrates, it just really touches me. Also the music of George Gershwin. I love Ellington's music, and I love Ellington's philosophy, which is good music is good music, bad music is bad music. Ellington, like Wynton Marsalis, was not afraid to take this idea of jazz, but put it in different settings. He had, Ellington had a great love of um, the Nutcracker by Peter Ilyich Tchaikovsky. So he made his own version of the Nutcracker, a jazz version of the Nutcracker. We as artists have to be willing to, to go outside that box. And I've tended to like, let's say, kind of hybrid composers. Gershwin's another one where he's bringing jazz ideals um, or popular music ideals at that time to the symphony orchestra and bringing those two two concepts together. Jesse Montgomery, a uh, very important up-and-coming composer. I, I love the energy of her music. And I've just started really getting into new music in the past, I'd say, four to five years and starting to introduce this music to our orchestra down here in uh, Texas. I was like, where am I right now? Down here in Texas. Um, but it's it's trying to shepherd the music in a way that the audience can receive it. And I think that is the key challenge we have as uh, conductors as far as programming goes. So, you know, I'm excited about the future. Um, people say that, you know, the, the classical audiences is getting too old. Um, I don't I don't agree with that. I think there is room for young people. Um, to be part of the experience. And that is what we are selling in, a, in an orchestra. We're selling an experience. And they're, they're coming in, they're leaving with the same thing they come in with. They're not leaving with a foamy, we're number one. They're not leaving with a, uh, a cup or a blanket. They're, they're, they're coming in for an experience. And we hope through that time that we have together that we can take them away from and transport them into a different realm for 15 minutes, for 30 minutes for an hour, however long, and just take them away into an experience that they can uh, find meaningful and find meaning to it. 
I was going to say, I think many people will find or will resonate with the idea of being taken away for a while because you just made that sound very dreamy. And I want to join on that <laughs> ASAP. And Chelsea, you know, we've had we have like a minute left, but I do want to do want to ask you've had so many different kinds of experiences within this realm. And now you're also part of the auditioning process to become to, you know, to be involved with the Greater Bridgeport Conductor um, or Symphony. What has that process been like or what has that experience been like that you can share with us? Well, one of the things that's neat about this experience is I've already had a chance to conduct them on two different occasions. A lot of times when you come in for an audition, you're meeting the orchestra and the administration and the community for the first time. I have had a, excuse me, I have had a chance to, to work with them before, but it's, it's an exciting time for the orchestra. It's an exciting time for the community and it's, it's good to look forward, but it's also a great time to look back on the wonderful work that Maestro Jacobson has provided for the community. The other thing that is a great honor for me, Mark alluded to one of the previous music directors, Gustav Meyer, who was here for 40 years. He was also a, an incredible influence mentor. I did a number of master classes. So I had heard about the Greater Bridgeport Symphony many, 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 many years ago. And to have a chance to work with this orchestra um, is a real privilege. So I'm, I'm excited about coming to the community next week. And as my mom would say, make a joyful noise. We're going to have a great, great concert. And there's great things on the horizon for the Greater Bridgeport Symphony as well. Well, we will be making some joyful noises over here. We uh, want to thank Chelsea Tipton, who is the Principal Pops Director for the New Haven Symphony Orchestra in Connecticut, for sharing his story with us today. Thank you so much, Chelsea. Thank you. You've also been listening to Mark Halstead. He's the executive director of the Greater Bridgeport Symphony, and he will be staying with us. Coming up next, Eric Jacobson will be joining us. He's the conductor of the Greater Bridgeport Symphony, and he'll be sharing with us about his experience working in classical music. Here's Blue as a Turquoise Night of Nishabur with Erica J Eric Jacobson and the Greater Bridgeport Symphony. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. 
This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. We're back with Eric Jacobson. He's the music director at the Greater Bridgeport Symphony Orchestra and will be sharing with us the magic of classical music. We also have Mark Halstead with us. He's the executive director of the Greater Bridgeport Symphony, and he'll be telling us more about what makes the symphony so special to the community and the state. Uh, Before we hop on to this, just want to make a quick correction that we actually started the show with Blue as a turquoise night of Nisha Boer's um, music, and we ended the last segment with Lark Ascending. And want to welcome both Eric and Mark to the show. Thank you so much. This has been really fun to listen to you speaking with Chelsea and Mark so far. Well, I'm excited that you're excited. We always feed off our <laughs> guests' excitement, especially when we're talking about something as cool as classical music. And just want to remind our listeners that you can also join the conversation at 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. And so we'll jump right to it, Eric. You know, before we start talking about how you got into classical music, can you share share with us a little bit about the music that we heard earlier, both Lark Ascending and Blue as a Turquoise Night of Nishabur? Well, yeah, and I'll just jump on something that you just said, which is, you know, the the idea of, of capturing energy and then, you know, owning it and then taking it yourself and living it. Isn't that why, in some ways, we as humans love to go to live music concerts, whether it's, you know, in a club with 50 people or at a stadium with 20,000? There is something so incredibly alive about people creating sounds in front of you and how you can be swept away by that energy. And it's, uh, you know, it's, it's why we have these conversations, why we could l- sort of feed off of each other. Um, so, you know, the, the recordings that you heard, that second one being The Lark Ascending by um, Ralph Vaughan Williams, an English composer from 100 years ago, a uh, really beautiful piece that sort of kind of tells the Icarus story of the of the bird that attempts to reach the sun and and fails and attempts again and tries again finally maybe uh, commits itself as a metaphor for transcendence of some sort. I'll you know this is I'll, I'll, can I can I just put you in a location um, instead of recording that and performing that in a active concert hall. We, as the Greater Bridgeport Symphony, went to this beautiful theater that probably people that live in the Greater Bridgeport area or in Connecticut might not know or might have heard of, which is called the Majestic, a theater that was very active um, in, in, you know, the I think it was built in the 10s, 1910s, and then kind of became decommissioned about 60 years later. We went and played in this venue that had no electricity and there was you know water damage and had been sealed off and we kind of reactivated it and used the lobby as our recording studio for this performance and i'll tell you the crazy thing is um the sound quality the the vibe the feeling that we got brought chills uh to all of us that were there making this recording you know there are no bathrooms there but the idea of creating sound in a space that once lived and thrived and hopefully someday could live and thrive again felt so important uh and and you know recording a piece that i think many people on that are listening right now it's always one of the top hundred most listened to pieces in the classical world the um lark ascending it's one of those pieces that really connects with people so doing that was so special 
Well, I was going to say, I think you just took me to that place. Like, I almost forgot I'm recording live in a studio at this moment. And, and Wait, we're live? <laughs> Surprise. <laughs> Spoiler alert, everyone. This is actually a live show. Um, and, and, and honestly, listening to even just the recordings earlier at the beginning of the show and at the end of the last segment brought chills to, to, to me. So I cannot imagine actually listening to it live. And, and we also want to hear a bit more about, you know, your involvement and your history. So can you tell us, how were you first introduced to classical music? Was it a piece of music? Was it an experience? Or what was that like? Well, I have that unique luck. And um, I was gifted the fact that my parents are both professional musicians or were professional musicians. My dad played in the Metropolitan Opera for 30 so on years. My mother was a flutist. And like so many people whose um, um, careers follow the footsteps of their parents, which of course is such a beautiful act of, you know, continued age, continuation and hopefully at least how I feel it, I assume uh, most people who have children feel the same thing, which is like you could only hope that your child is happy and joyful and, you know, experiences life in a way that brings them joy. And most likely, one of the things that as parents we think about is you hope that your child is better than you. Because we all realize no matter what we do, it doesn't matter if we're you know, accountants or cooks or musicians or whatever. Um, I think that being good and excelling at what you do is one of those things that humans need, right? It's the constant decision to improve oneself. So, um, and musicians have it both incredibly hard and incredibly lucky in that we never have reached our goals. And it's terribly hard to realize that, you know, you could play your concert and often after a concert, I go home and I study some more and it's the next thing. What are you doing next? Because you're constantly honing your skill, you're sharpening your blade and trying to figure out what's next. And so, yes, that's incredibly challenging because at five o'clock or six o'clock or nine o'clock, you get home and work isn't done and you have to make a decision. You have to say, okay, I'm not going to work anymore right now because it's actually better for me not to, or I'm going to keep on working. Um, and of course, that's a challenge yet at the same time for what we do as humans, the decision to keep on trying and to keep on striving, it's one of the greatest uh, um, gifts as a musician, which is, hey, we recognize we will never make it. However, we're going to try our best to get to that place as often as we can. Well, I was going to say that's a rather hopeful message for this Tuesday. And about that work-life balance, I think that would res resonate with a lot of people. So it's nice to hear from a conductor slash musician that you have the same problem. Um, oh, and, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and we talked to Chelsea earlier a little bit about this, but how did you make the change from being a musician yourself to becoming a conductor? What was that process for you? It, you know, um, when I was in high school, when I went to pre-college at Juilliard, which is a Saturday program where you get together with a lot of musicians that are the same age, you know, between whatever, 10 and 17. And everyone is kind of a music nerd in all the beautiful ways. You know, you, you devote your entire Saturday, the day that you could 
either be, you know, watching cartoons, hanging out with friends, going to all the bar mitzvahs, you know, all the things that that you do growing up and wanting to experience. And instead, you devote yourself from whatever time you have to get up to that 830 rehearsal till six o'clock at night. And um, that moment, that that time for me was very special. I didn't really um, click with that many people in my high school. Um, of course, I have dear friends from high school that I still am in touch with. However, it was this group of musicians that on Saturday we connected that I sort of felt that I was, um, you know, in, in that family. And so what I do is I'd go and I'd play and I realized, and I think we all have this to some degree in our lives, um, you know, change is hard. But when I was in high school and then in college, I thought to myself, if I could have a life in music, I'll be happy. So that's, you know, call, call it high school senior. Um, I auditioned for Juilliard. Uh, I got in, but I felt like I was on the lowest ring, just holding on, barely holding on. My brother, four years older than me, a concert violinist, played, you know, a violin concerto with the New York Philharmonic when he was 13 years old. I had very high expectations and recognition that, like, to make it as a musician, you had to be really good. So I feel like I was just barely holding on. And honestly, at that time, I thought to myself, you know what? If I'm not going to be a performer, that's fine. I could have a life in music off stage. I could run an orchestra. I could run a, a performing arts center. Um, I could run a radio station. You know, something of like figuring out how to build and create, but not necessarily from the stage. Though at the same time, I really put my horse blinders on, practiced cello all the ways I knew I should or thought I should. Luckily, I had great teachers. Uh, great colleagues, and you know, uh, went through went through college, and I and I realized that my shift happened. So from I need a life in music to I need a life in chamber music. So chamber music for for everyone, um, just to unify what that means, it means a group of humans coming together and playing without a conductor, generally speaking, and probably in the number of four, give or take. You know, you have a trio, a piano, violin, cello, or in my case a string quartet, so two violins, viola, and cello. Uh, and there's something very special about, you know, now that we're coming up on the 250th anniversary of this country that we're in, and we think back to that year, 1776, and we think to the time that the string quartet more or less was invented. It's not totally true, but um, Joseph Haydn, um, sort of the person who invented the string quartet in a lot of ways, wrote... Uh, over a hundred of them, uh, these the there was something special about four people coming into a room together, all on equal terms, having a conversation. And I, that was happening in Europe in the quartet. And here we were sort of figuring out uh, what America could be and and hopefully would be someday. Uh, so you know, I joined a string quartet and was in a quartet for. Um, 10 years and all the time loving it so much. And sometime in there, I went through this phase of realizing that the repertoire of the orchestra, A, the, the music that we were able to do in orchestra, and B, the fact that I wanted to have this type of relationship with musicians on a broader scale. Like, a, you know, a conductor 
in a lot of ways, you could draw a lot of metaphors to either like the CEO of a company, or I think in my case, I really like to think of it as a host of a party. I love throwing parties. I like lots of people around. And I feel like what what Chelsea mentioned earlier is, you know, finding a way to communicate with people and to get everyone thinking more or less on the same page about a musical act and a musical uh, decision is really beautiful. And I think that's kind of what I was aiming for. So somehow I realized that that was more of the calling that I needed in my life. And, and that was kind of how it happened, saving many details of hysterically crying and telling my dad that I would you know, mostly be playing, you know, mostly be conducting and not playing anymore because my father doesn't love conductors the way, uh, you know, you'd hope your father would like um, the act of what you are going to do. <laughs> well, I'm wondering if the historical, uh, historically crying portion will really resonate with a lot of us because who hasn't cried in a corner, right? And, and you know, we, I think I want to thank you for, for taking on your calling because having this classical music party with Eric Jacobson uh, on where we live seems to be the good way to start the week, in my opinion. Um, and it, <laughs> you know, it seems like you've had so many, you know, very hardcore experiences, right? But you sound very optimistic as well in terms of where you wanted to go with music. And so, how would you describe your musical style? And do you think you took a little bit of that philosophy working as a conductor during the pandemic? Well, I, I think during the pandemic, we all tried to figure out what we can do. I would go back and do it differently, uh, as I think we probably all would, you know, deciding, well, this is, what is this time really supposed to be for us as humans? And of course, recognizing how challenging it was for so many people and how, uh, you know, those that, that were struggling in different ways than others and how to, but I, you know, I think during the pandemic, we all tried to be our best selves musically. So I spent a lot of time practicing the cello and playing in, in ways that I had not because, you know, when, when you conduct 50, 60 concerts a year and repertoire is always different, you have to study so much to feel confident. And during that time, I was able to sort of go back to the basics a little bit of, hey, this is, I'm a musician. I'm, I, I'm an instrumentalist and I could relate to what that world is. That was a special thing. Um, I would say, uh, and, uh, you know, there probably are some people listening that re remember that really orchestras kind of stopped uh, for quite some time. And I will say thanks to Mark on the call and thanks to the board of the Greater Bridgeport Symphony. Um, the Greater Bridgeport Symphony did more than almost any orchestra in the Northeast at that time in terms of giving music to audience and giving um, hope and somehow the recognition that music is going to uh, be on the other end waiting for us. And that was, that was a, a very important thing. I mean, you know, the Greater Bridgeport Symphony plays more or less you know, around six, six sets of concerts a year and all of the, the educational things that happen around those concerts and so on. And we really committed to making sure that we were still going to be doing that for ourselves, for the artists on stage, for the artists and, and music lovers in the audience and for the, the, the greater community that we were sending this music out to. So in some ways that was, that was a real treat and something that the orchestra committed to early on saying, Hey, we're going to be safe. 
let's not overblow this. Let's be safe and do our thing. And I think that was an important um, time for a lot of humans. And with the pandemic, too, uh, how has the way we consume music change engagement in live music, do you think? You know, how do you get people to the orchestra and interested in classical music again? Well, I don't necessarily think people lost interest in in music or classical music. Uh, we, we, you know, music consumption is up overall. Uh, there is a tendency for, you know, for the pop artists that have always had uh huge sales to continue doing that. I think, you know, we just got to keep on doing the thing that we do best, which is connecting on a very deep level and recognizing that that's super challenging because in this culture of um, news cycles that are so short and so quick and, you know, everything is reactioning, reactionary and immediate. And, uh, you know, um, we, we see something and if the video lasts more than 30 seconds, we're kind of lost and that's a super hard translation. If that is what we are trained to consume, then, then going and hearing a piece of music that lasts 30 minutes is a really challenging moment. That being said, and I hope this resonates with um, some of your listeners, but um, I'm, I'm 100% in that. It's not like I am somehow riding above that in a different way. I, I consume the same way I think many people do, yet one of the reasons we go to concerts and maybe most, maybe more so concerts of acoustic music, whether it's classical or folk or something like this, we are there actually because it gives us a moment to step away. And, uh, you know, the device, the connection to what we do. Yes, we're going to have that. I don't see a time in my life where, um, where social media is gone. I do see a time, I don't know if you feel this, that that social media will be maybe spoken of in a different term, sort of like, oh, we know this is unhealthy for people, but we keep on doing it. And we have things in the past, you know, um, whether it's, you know, smoking or something. And we knew it was bad if we kept on doing it. And I feel like there's going to be a recognition. And then we're also going to need to find that moment of, hey, we're going we're gonna to actually have more time in our lives. And I don't know how that ends up happening, but there's something so incredibly beautiful about going back to that, that humanity of sitting in a room together and sharing an experience. And though the world takes that away from us more and more, we, we reach and strive for that. We got about a minute left here, but I do want to bring Mark in real quick. You know, speaking about connection and sitting in a in a in a room and sharing that musical experience with other people, can you talk about the importance of of investing and focusing in the local arts and local regional orchestras? Well, the pandemic, of course, has diminished our audience, and we're on the process, like everyone else, of rebuilding. Uh, but it's it's interesting. Um, I think we have lost a segment of our audience, perhaps permanently. Some people that have decided to stay home because of the pandemic, um, they're staying home. Now, we've repurposed ourselves in a way that we are now uh, putting our concerts on video for educational purposes. But occasionally now we're still using them for those who can't get out. So we're trying to, to keep the audience engaged in that way. But I think it's an exciting time because it could mean that we're going to be having to look 
everywhere and anywhere to find those people who haven't yet been touched by classical music. And one of the wonderful things that's going to happen next week is uh, an annual thing that we do. We go into one of the Bridgeport high schools and we bring the whole orchestra and we play for them in their own house. And we'll be at Central High School where my mother was in 1938. Uh, we'll be there in 2023. And we'll, we'll bring in uh, the music that these kids are not familiar with. And we'll open the door. Now, will it get through to everybody? No. Will it get through to 10 or 20% on some level? That's a, that's a big haul. That's a wonderful thing. So I hope we'll have a, a couple of hundred or, or more kids there, as well as the music kids in these classes that are, you know, the Bridgeport schools have a very dedicated music staff and they work with very little resource and they do a great job. And if we're able to help with that and bring that into the school, we've done our job and we'll continue to do such things. And I think we'll, we'll bring up a new audience, slow but sure, over a decade or two, I hope we will see these younger people coming into the symphony as a resource. And as Eric said, to be in a space where the music will only sound that way once ever. It's for you. It's made for you right there. That impresses the kids of today who are so used to everything being canned and packaged. We're making something that is truly unique. We're, we're giving them the experience of music made for you right in front of you. No embellishments, no electronics. We're right there. And it's it's an exciting time. You've been listening to Mark Halstead, who is the executive director of the Greater Bridgeport Symphony, and Eric Jacobson, who is the conductor of the Greater Bridgeport Symphony Orchestra for a final season. And they will both be staying with us. I'm Catherine Shen. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. It's all about classical music today and what it can bring to an orchestra, as well as beyond the theater and into the community. We're here with Eric Jacobson. He's the music director at the Greater Bridgeport Symphony Orchestra for a final season, and Mark Halstead, who is the executive director of the Greater Bridgeport Symphony. So jumping right back to both Eric and Mark, you know, Eric, you are in your final season. I, I'm hearing there's going to be some happy tears. Can you share with us, you know, what are some of your next steps? What's up, what's uh, coming up next for you? Well, you know, and I, I just want to make sure that we're all aware of this, but this is my last season as music director. I, of course, um, want to be involved in this orchestra and this community going forward because it has been an absolute dream. And I feel like, uh, once again, almost embarrassed how much I received, you know, for my soul and for my experience through the musicians and the community from the group. And this group, this orchestra will thrive on. Uh, there's no question. Um, it's one of the most exciting things uh, that's going on programmatically, artistically uh, in Connecticut, at least, you know, maybe that's a bias, but in some ways I, I, I really feel that it's true and it will continue that way. Um, so my future, I, you know, we just got to keep on doing our thing. Um, there's actually, um, what is it called? A, a half-life that conductors have with orchestras where you get to a place and you're creating something and the relationship with the orchestra, the conductor, the board, the staff, the audience, the community, the music that you kind of aim for to find the, the, the brightest 
burning heat, you know, the, the, the flame that's the strongest. And you want to make sure, like we all do, we always want to make sure that we're, we're leaving something better than we found it. And um, as mentioned previously, if you've been listening, I, I took over um, about nine years ago from the great conductor Gustav Meyer, who had been with the orchestra for about 40 years. And that is one of, I think, maybe the most heroic things. I think he's one of the, he was one of the longest running uh, conductor music directors in America at that time. And I don't think that um, is necessarily possible anymore because there's so much changing all, always. And I realized that, you know, I'm, I'm stepping um, away as music director, but boy, uh, I'm so invested in what's going to happen. So getting to speak today with Chelsea Tipton, who's such a wonderful music uh, conductor. And I think he would be such a wonderful music director as all of the candidates that could come in and really bring this orchestra yet to the next level. And I think everyone has different forms of pride and sometimes pride holds us back. Sometimes pride pushes us forward. Um, I have a, a real sense of pride with this group in that I would really have loved to leave this group in a place where I could never have gotten the job. So, you know, you, you, you somehow can build something where if you yourself had applied at that same moment with those same, uh, you know, CV and life experience and musical experience, you wouldn't be there because, you know, the group is at a different level and therefore attracting a level of candidate and music director options that are beyond what you could have hoped. And I really feel that all the candidates that are, that are there and, you know, possibly one of them is the music director of the future for the greater Bridgeport symphony. That's so special. And I'm, you know, I'm, I, I know that my last concert as, as with this title, not my last concert with this orchestra, but my last concert with this title, I'm going to lose it <laughs> because I have created these uh, relationships and other people have created relationships. We've all found this moment together in time. And, uh, you know, that, that shared joy and then that decision to move on. I, you know, big decisions are so hard. Big decisions are what make life interesting. Big decisions sometimes create pain Big decisions are also what gives us the energy to move forward. So it's, gosh, it's, it's just so hard to be a human and make decisions. <laughs> but I look forward to uh, whatever comes next. Um, and yes, I do conduct other orchestras. Uh, I'm the music director, both in the Orlando Philharmonic and the Virginia Symphony in Norfolk, as well as my orchestra in New York, um, that has had kind of a, a really beautiful relationship with the Greater Bridgeport Symphony, my group in New York called The Knights as a chamber orchestra. We just announced that next season we'll be at Carnegie for three uh, uh, concerts going forward, sort of a, a resident chamber orchestra of Carnegie Hall now. And I feel like these connections and building a community, when you say Greater Bridgeport Symphony, some ways greater means New York. And I feel like, you know, we've expanded, we've, we've, we've put our elbows out and really expanded. So there's so many things going forward. 
I want to thank you so much for sharing that with us. You've been listening to Eric Jacobson. He's a music director at the Greater Bridgeport Symphony Orchestra for our final season. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Catherine Shen. Today's show is produced by Tess Terrible. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Download wherever you live anytime. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>